What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode of FedWatch. Today is FOMC Day, so we should have a very good show. My name is Ansel Lindner. I'm here with my co-host, CK, but we also have a guest today, editor at Real Vision, Andreas Steno. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. Awesome, man. I ran across your stuff a couple months ago on Twitter, and then you really piqued my interest a few weeks ago when you were trying to talk sanity into the European energy crisis. So I had to have you on to talk about that. But being that today is Fed Day, I guess we should start with that. What's your takeaway of the 75 basis point hike? Is it what you expected? Well, more or less, yes. I mean, the Fed is sort of crystal clear today. They don't want us to bet on a pivot this year, at least. If you look at the updated dot plot, so the median projections from the members of the Federal Open Market uh, Rates Committee, they essentially tell us that they intend to hike interest rates all the way through this year. I think the median projection is now between four and a half and five percent. Most of the members leaning towards an, an interest rate above four and a half percent by year end. So, I mean, they're They've, they quite frankly tried to tell us that we shouldn't bet on a pivot. They've quite frankly tried to tell us that we shouldn't bet on higher levels for risk assets. So they're trying to bring asset prices down. Whether they will succeed is another question, but the at least the intent is pretty clear from them today. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I forgot to give you time to introduce yourself, man. I just got right <laughs> into the content. So Andreas, can you tell us what you do with Real Vision and tell us about your newsletter? Yeah, I mean, I'm born and raised in institutional banking. So I've been heading strategy teams in, in various Northern European investment banks for, for more than a decade. But now I'm contracting with both Blockworks and Real Vision. I'm hosting the daily briefing at Real Vision a couple of times a week, and then also hosting essential interviews behind the paywall at, at the Real Vision platform. And then I have my own sub stack called Steno Signals, where I try to sort of cut through the macro noise, in particular on the energy front right now, because it's very needed. I've seen so much misinformation on this European energy crisis. Just to say it up front, it is a crisis, but I've seen so much misinformation anyway. And therefore, I've decided to spend most of my time on that recently. Awesome. Okay. Now getting back to the Fed stuff, you were talking about the dot plot and about 4.5% and, you know, they want to get to the end of this hiking cycle, but you know, they, they're saying there's going to be an end, right? So I, I always think that, okay, maybe they're not pivoting now, but they're telling us they will stop eventually. And they're telling us they will pivot eventually. And so, um, you know, that not that what the market is sniffing out? What do, what do you take or what, what do you, what's your take on that? Well, I think you're you're right, given that equities have started to rebound uh, during the press conference with Jay Powell. The important point here is obviously whether the Federal Reserve will keep monetary policy tighter than average for long, right? And if we look at the dot plot, they, they send a very clear signal for the short run. But for the sort of medium term projection, it's more like a wobbly signal, I'd say. They intend on bringing the interest rate lower again, because they clearly find themselves to be in what they call restrictive territory right now. Uh, so a, a, a rates level that will sort of decrease the activity uh, in the overall economy. And they don't intend to stay at such levels for too long, uh, because they know that's very harmful. Uh, so the question is whether they will succeed in bringing asset prices down with this message, because I, I essentially think that they want to bring asset prices down even further because it's the simplest way to kill inflation. Okay, Andres, so saying, oh, go ahead. All right, no, no, go for it. 
I was just going to say, so you're saying the asset prices, they're targeting asset prices as a way to target CPI. What, what do you think about the CPI being at zero, close to 0% for the last two months here in the US, at least headline? That's not core, of course, but what's your read on CPI and peak CPI? Well, I've probably tried to call the peak in CPI uh, a, a couple too many times this year. But if I look forward on, on US CPI, I feel very convinced that in six months from now, all of the uh, so-called inflationistas, they will be much less loud than they are right now. The reason being that some of the price surveys that we conduct among SMEs in the US, they point clearly downwards now. Uh, so the pricing power of corporates is is worsening, worsening right now uh, as a consequence of, we, of a weaker economy, as a consequence of, of larger inventories and stuff like that. The main culprit in the consumer basket right now is housing. Uh, mainly due to the methodology. Uh, so the way that we measure housing costs in the consumer basket is, if you ask me, extremely outdated. It kind of measures the development seen in house prices through 2020 and 2021 with time lag, as we only ask one-sixth of the overall target group of the shelter cost category in the consumer basket every month. So it simply takes time before that survey actually catches up to the reality. And therefore, I'm pretty convinced that this is sort of the only category that the Fed will now need to bring down. And if we watch the developments in house prices right now, I'm fairly certain that in 12 months from now, this, this shelter cost category, which is the main culprit right now in inflation, will be at, at much lower levels than what we see today. So yes, I dare to call the peak. And I actually think <laughs> we have peaked already, to be honest. Andres, I'm, I'm kind of curious. For me, I find that there's this strange contradiction between CPI increasing, you know, maybe because of inflation, but definitely because of supply chain destruction, conflict, that kind of thing. And I find that there's like this contradiction with trying to solve that by increasing rates. You know, obviously destroying demand and making it so consumers can't consume is, is definitely a way to reduce demand on scarce goods. But I guess, can you talk about that kind of like contradiction between central bank activity and what's actually happening in the economy? Yeah, I, I mean, if you ask a sort of a textbook economist whether it's a good idea to hike interest rates due to a supply shock? The answer is no. I frankly also find it to be a wrong path to pursue given the amount of supply issues that we're faced with right now. They're getting better, but they're still around, right? The issue is that it's sort of the only weapon available to the Federal Reserve, right? They cannot do much to support the supply side in any way, right? So the, they, they can only sort of try and, and contain the demand side, which is why they simply have to do that given the incentive structure that we've given them. If you look at the incentive structure of a central banker, if inflation runs five, six, seven percentage points above the target that you've been given by the politicians, then you don't really have a choice, right? You need to do whatever it takes to bring inflation back towards that mandate, even though you're sort of fighting a battle that you cannot really influence too much given the we weapons that you have available, right? So I get why they do so given the incentive structure, incentive structure that we've given them, but I don't find it to be the right medicine or the right cure rather. Yeah, that's a, a great point. And in the, on the supply side of stuff, there is obviously a big difference between the challenges that Europe is facing 
and the challenges that the U.S. is facing. Europe seems to be behind the U.S. in how fast they're hiking and stuff. So can you, for a lot of us in the U.S., and we don't really follow the ECB as closely as we should, what is the ECB doing right now? And do you think that there's going to be any sort of divergence in the future where the Fed pauses, but the ECB is still hiking? The ECB has started hiking recently as well. So they hiked by 75 basis points at the last central bank meeting in Europe as well. But they, they're clearly running sort of behind the Federal Reserve in this battle. Maybe as the inflation that we see in Europe is even more supply side driven than what we see in the US. And I mean, the European Central Bank is a f sort of a funny institution, right? It is institution made up by, I think it's 27 member countries thereabout, and they all hold a seat on, on the board, right? So in order to sort of uh, form a consensus within the European Central Bank, you will need to have a majority of countries supporting the decision making. And usually there is a huge divergence between the opinions in the northern part of Europe and in the southern part of Europe, mainly due to uh, sort of strong divergences in, in terms of the public debt load in, in southern Europe versus northern Europe. And that is the exact reason why it's taken so long for the, for the European Central Bank to act even though inflation is actually running, I'd say, even hotter in, in Europe than in the US by now. And they are, I'd say, they're trying to do something, but they cannot really do much, given that they also need always to have an eye on the euro construction as a whole when they conduct monetary policy. If they, if they hike rates aggressively, it's usually something that spills over to negative developments in Southern European bond markets and Southern European equity markets. And I guess the Euro construction can only swallow such a turbulence in uh, Southern European debt markets to a certain extent. But by the end of the day, the European Central Bank has time after time been called to action to support the, the developments in Italy and Spain, for example, when they've tried to to sort of tighten monetary policy. So it's a very different beast from the Federal Reserves due to all of these uh, country by country considerations that we simply need to, to be on top of when we assess the European Central Bank. Awesome. Yeah, great answer. So a lot in the past, you know, we've had, there's been a lot of harmony between central banks and their monetary policy. They either were all easing at the same time, or it was kind of surprising if you saw a major central bank kind of out of step with the other central banks. And so there, there seems to be a lot of coordination there. Does the Fed feel that coordination? They, they seem to be hiking and, you know, at all costs, they're just going to write, the dollar's going to rise. They're just going to keep hiking and let the ECB and the BOJ, you know, fend for themselves. So do you think the days of central bank coordination are over, or at least maybe they're, you know, on pause right now where everyone tries to, it's every central bank for themselves? Yeah, it's, it, it seems as if we've entered sort of a new regime when it comes to monetary policy, because when inflation is, is running above target, all of a sudden you actually want to have a strong currency, not a weak currency against your peers, because with a strong currency, you, uh, you import less inflation, right? And that's 
probably the reason why the Federal Reserve has sort of chosen to move ahead with rapid interest rate hikes, despite a very strong dollar, because they know that the dollar at current levels is sort of a global wrecking ball. Just watch the developments in Sri Lanka and elsewhere in emerging markets. They simply cannot withstand the dollar at this level, paired with high food prices and electricity prices at the same time. I think we should expect yeah, more devastating scenes from, from emerging markets as a consequence of this. But the Fed doesn't care at this time around. They, they used to care about stuff like that, but certainly not this Fed. And therefore, I, I think you're absolutely spot on that, that the divergence that we see between the big central banks will only currently grow bigger. I mean, someone needs to call Bank of Japan and tell them what's going on elsewhere. I mean, they, they've essentially fallen asleep over there, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, at, at every other central bank is moving and, and they are still just stuck in a debate on whether to keep interest rates at 0.1 or 0.1. Uh, one five at the 10 year point on their yield curve, right? Uh, quite interesting given that they actually have inflation above the target, et cetera, in Japan as well. Um, but my my take is now that I've uh, tried to to make fun of them is actually that they they have it right to a certain extent in Japan because I think in six or nine months from now, we will be faced with a completely different reality in terms of inflation, right? I think the deceleration and inflation will be pretty rapid. And therefore, by the end of the day, it could be that they've chosen the right path in Japan. Let's see. So speaking about central bankers not necessarily being in unison, I saw a hilarious meme. I actually had to t uh, tag Ansel in it this morning, but it was effectively like a slap competition. And one of the girls in the competition had, you know, the Fed and the other one had the ECB. And it was, it was like almost portraying, you know, these central banks are taking, you know, taking turns at a delivering kind of blows to each other. Can you talk a little bit more about like the dynamic of these central banks not necessarily being in unison and, and maybe, you know, what, what difficulties that kind of pushes on them from a policy perspective? Yeah, I, I mean, the simple pass-through mechanism for a, a central bank policy is the FX rate versus other fiat currencies around the world. So very clearly, when the Federal Reserve started moving ahead of other central banks, the US dollar started gaining as a consequence of the wider interest rate spread between the US and, uh, for example, Japan or uh, Europe. I think one of the reasons why the European Central Bank uh, simply needs uh, to act with high interest rates now is that they, they, they will have to defend the euro exchange rate to a certain extent because otherwise uh, they will simply continue to import inflation via the, via the FX channel. Uh, and I mean, uh, we've all seen the, develop the development in the euro versus the dollar over the past 18 months or so uh, from, was it just south of 120 to um, 0.98 or there about today. It's been a landslide. And think about a situation without interest rate hikes from the European Central Bank. They've actually increased the uh, policy rate at the last two meetings. We would have been at, I don't know, 0.95 or 0.9 in, in the euro versus the US dollar, uh, thereby importing even more inflation on top of an already accelerating inflation picture in Europe. So it sort of changes the dynamic when inflation is running hot around the globe because all of a sudden this is sort of a fierce bat in FX space trying to, to get the upper hand against other central banks when it comes to the relative level of interest rates to support your own currency. Because everyone wants a strong fiat currency these days in sharp contrast to what we saw throughout the 2010s, right? Everyone tried to to sort of manufacture the weakest currency development. Even the US Federal Reserve started involving themselves in, in, in such considerations. The European Central Bank certainly did so as well. So this is 
kind of the world upside down in fiat currency space relative to what we saw just before the pandemic. Yeah, well, one of the things that people have been predicting for a long time is the end of the euro. And being a Bitcoin channel, we always want to, you know, think about currencies, the evolution of currency, whether it, it can ever get to Bitcoin and stuff. Do you see the euro facing some sort of existential crisis from this or because I mean, we could get into the, the politics of it. You know, we had some recent elections in Sweden. We have a, an election coming up, I think at the end of this week or maybe early next week in Italy, there seems to be a lot of like Euro skepticism or EU skepticism, I should say, not necessarily Euro skepticism, but do you see the Euro facing some existential threat from all this? Well, let me put it like this initially. The Euro is one of the crappiest constructions I've ever seen. I mean, it is it is basically designed to fail over time. <laughs> so the, the reason is that you've invited several member countries to the same club without them having some sort of formal policy design that they sort of coordinate across borders, right? So one country enters with a very strong fiscal profile, balanced budget, no debt, while another country enters the Euro construction with a truckload of, of public debt and massive fiscal deficits, no structural reform, stuff like that, right? So it's really a, a mixed bag of goodies if you open beneath the surface in, uh, in the Euro construction. Uh, so no, I, I simply cannot see how the Euro construction survives for longer than the three of us. I would be very surprised at least if, if it were to survive that long, simply due to the fact that you cannot have a currency union between people with very different opinions on how to run it. But, and I, I have to admit that the cultural differences between some of the member countries is, is just humongous. And that's the reason why they cannot agree on, on sort of a fixed set of rules before entering this construction, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's a very bad construction. I think you can hear that by now. It's, it's of course always tricky to figure out exactly when such a construction will, will, will eventually have to break down. What we saw through the pandemic was actually move in the other direction, if you ask me, European unity mm. as a consequence of, of the lockdowns and the European Union even started issuing sort of common debt between the member countries, trying to distribute the bill around the continent, etc. But I think this energy crisis is a whole different beast in, in, in that regards, because what we see right now is sort of the first signs of what I call energy nationalism in Europe, each and every country trying to, to fill up their own storage before exporting energy to other countries. Makes a ton of sense, by the way. And we have seen a couple of countries already pointing out that, well, if we don't have the energy, then we are, of course, not exporting energy to our neighbors before we, we ensure that our own population has the energy that they need. So this is... A, a different beast compared to the pandemic when it comes to this Euro construction, because I think there are scenarios this, this winter that could lead to quite a, a ne negative development in Europe when it comes to this energy crisis. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your digital assets. Collateralized loans are great for living expenses, buying a car, or even for when you just have to have that sweet Rolex. But what isn't so great is when you then lose the ability to trade your assets once your loan has been taken out. So just like you, Moon Mortgage believes you should be able to have your cake and eat it too. Moon Mortgage's Trade and Borrow is the world's first digital asset loan margin account, 
allowing you to instantly trade your Bitcoin while borrowing against your account, all with next to zero insolvency risk, no origination fees, nor any third-party risk, as Moon Mortgage will never lend out your digital assets. Welcome to the future of collateralized lending. Visit moonmortgage.io today to learn how you can trade, borrow, and then trade your digital assets some more. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our Proof of Workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. All right. Well, you you broached the the topic here, the energy, the energy crisis. So yeah, I like that idea, the energy nationalism. Can you give us a just an update on what it's looking like with their national reserves over there by country? You know, it's starting to get into past summer. I mean, it's starting to get a little bit cooler outside. So I think this might be front on people's minds. I mean, it already is, but, you know, um, might be getting to crunch time a little bit to make some decisions here. So what is the current status? Well, if we look at the situation in, in natural gas space first, the storage capacity in Europe is certainly not big enough to cover all of the consumption needs over the course of the heating season from October until March. But the storages are almost full by now. And the European Union basically agreed on a strategy where they aimed at filling up all of the storage capacity in Europe by the 15th of November. And I guess we are very close to to filling up the storages already today. So basically way ahead of the curve in, in terms of storages. The flip side is that right about every European country started bidding up the price of natural gas at the same time, right after this legislation was agreed upon in the European Commission. And that was the exact reason why we saw the explosion to the upside in the so-called TTF natural gas price traded in, in the Netherlands earlier in August. But now that storage is a full I mean, who's left to sort of bid up the price right now? Because obviously we're still 
at a point in, in, in the seasonality where we use less natural gas than what we import per day. That will turn around by roughly mid-October, where we will start to see withdrawals from the storages to, to ensure that the natural gas demand is, is, is covered on a daily basis. But to take an example, I mean, we've been talking a lot about Germany, in particular in US media. Will Germany freeze this winter or not? I, I think the base case is Germany will actually make it through the winter without even having to ration gas. And I'll tell you why. If we look at the overall storage size of the German natural gas storage size, sizes, they, they can storage around 245 terawatt hours of natural gas. And they're very close to, to filling up those storages completely already today. If we look at a usual month during the heating season, right about 110 maybe 115 terawatt hours of natural gas is used per month so that essentially means that without any inflows at all into germany this storage can sort of cover two and a half months of of heating demand but we should also remember that the inflow is actually still pretty decent even though Russia has sort of stopped the flows via the all-important Nord Stream 1 pipeline and also the Yamal Europe pipelines, so the two biggest pipelines running into Europe. But, I mean, Germany clearly have other suppliers, Norway, Qatar, the US, for example, and the flow is still running at levels just south of 90 hours of natural gas per month. So, all in all, when we do this calculation, we have a starting point of 245, we have a monthly reduction of 115 due to demand, and we have a monthly inflow of a bit less than 90 from other sources than Russia. Then I end up net-net with the storage being filled up to an extent of a little less than 100 terawatt hours by 1st of April next year. So it's not that bad. I mean, to me, it's been exaggerated in, in the US media, but Obviously, there is a worst case scenario with, you know, a, a very, very cold winter like we used to know them from, say, the 1920s or thereabout. But if you take sort of the average temperature over the past 10, 15 years, then there, is, then there are no issues for this winter. I can promise you that. Awesome. Very detailed answer. So it's, but isn't there a threat that the economic damage has already, some of the economic damage has already occurred, of course, with different chemical plants having to shut down in Germany and, and Poland and, and those places. It sounds like there, there could be a dramatic swing in prices down very low before winter. If you're saying that the storage is already full, is that the case? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reason why the spot price basically exploded to the upside in August was this piece of legislation from the European Commission. So they asked all member countries to buy natural gas spot at the same time. Not necessarily a smart thing to do, but nonetheless, they've managed to, to fill up the storages ahead of schedule as a consequence of this. So I, I think you point to the exact issue. One thing is whether the Germans and the Europeans will make it through the winter without even having to ration natural gas. But the flip side of that is the price that they've paid for the natural gas. And that price is, is certainly out of league with anything seen ever in history. So I made the calculations, I think a couple of days ago, and you can see it in my Twitter feed on the energy cost as a percent of GDP in various European countries. And we've gone from paying around two to two and a half percent of the gross domestic product on an annual basis for all of the energy needed in the economy to 
paying above 10% of GDP for, for energy this year. So basically a, a, a move of four times the, the level seen in 2020 and 2019 thereabout. So it is a massive game changer. And the European economy is basically an economy designed to lever up on cheap energy from Russia. And that cheap energy is long gone. So a really interesting situation, right, where European energy authorities are effectively kind of like filling up the reserves at the at peak prices, almost buying the top on what you are forecasting to, you know, be a probably sharp decline in energy prices. I'm kind of curious, like, how does European energy policy, you know, start moving in a more positive direction following what is probably going to be a a pretty rough punch in the face when this is all said and done. You know, people have been talking about going back to nuclear, obviously, you know, Russian gas is now something that can't be relied upon. Like what, what, what kind of comes next in terms of energy policy? Well, it depends on, on which country you ask in the European Union. We, we need to remember that this is what I call a self-inflicted crisis, because if you look at the decisions taken in Germany and in France over the past 10 years, they've basically allowed Putin a sort of a window of opportunity, slowly but surely by closing down nuclear capacity, deciding to use more or less solely Russian natural gas as sort of the ground layer or the stable source of electricity in the European electricity grid. We should remember that many countries in Europe, they are self-sufficient on electricity via renewables. But as we know, renewables, they are extremely volatile in terms of when, where, and how they actually produce electricity. So what Europe basically needs now is a new stable source of electricity. And I mean, if you ask me the simple answer to that question is nuclear, but it obviously takes, I'd say at least six to eight years to really get on top of that regime shift in terms of electricity production in Europe. If we go down the, uh, the, the, the road of nuclear, since, well, some, some countries don't even have sort of the know-how, so we will have to import know-how, we will have to start rebuilding, et cetera, et cetera. It will take years. So I guess the short-term solution, and you've already seen it via the spillovers to the US natural gas price, is to import liquid natural gas via the the seaway, basically, from the US and Qatar with an arm and a leg. And we will pay whatever it takes over the next couple of winters to get that liquid natural gas from the U.S. And right about every country in Europe is, is currently building capacity to, to receive liquid natural gas. Germany, the Netherlands, Italy, Spain, they're all trying to increase the capacity. Quite needed given that it's probably not feasible to expect any Russian gas to come online again. One thing that I've been thinking about is, you know, there is a lot of energy in the Eastern Mediterranean Mm. and if Europe, yeah, they, they can't rely on Russian gas and it it almost seems more realistic to pivot South and, you know, be more engaged in Mediterranean politics. So that's one of my thing calls for long-term future is Europe kind of pivots South back into the Mediterranean, Mediterranean politics, Middle East stuff. What are your thoughts on finding, you know, you don't have to go all the way to Qatar. You can actually just go to Israel or Egypt. Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. Both Spain and Italy receive natural gas flows from from the northern part of of Africa, mainly Algeria. But you're right that there are resources in, in other parts of the Mediterranean area, also around the Black Sea towards the Romanian border. So 
this is obviously one of the things that we need to exploit over the course of the next three to five years. But I mean, from the stage where you try to exploit these potential fields, et cetera, until the, the actual delivery date, I'd assume that it will take quite, quite some time, even if we know that the resources are there to a certain extent. And, and therefore the short-term answer is liquid natural gas to a much larger extent than trying to exploit the underground in, in the Mediterranean and, and some of the outskirts of, of Europe. There is also a huge natural gas field in, in the Netherlands, just outside of the city of Groningen. And I mean, it's running at one-tenth of its max capacity due to uh, some light earthquakes in the area surrounding Groningen. And I mean, in between 20,000 and 25,000 inhabitants of, of, of Groningen have sort of filed a case against the, the Dutch state, and it's still an unresolved matter. But I mean, given that Putin sort of holds a, a whole continent hostage to this natural gas situation. I simply don't get why we don't exploit that gas field in the Netherlands now that it's already up and running just because of the risk of, of an earthquake surrounding that, that city. But I mean, I'm not a politician that there was probably a reason why. <laughs> yeah. Andres, I want to, I want to slightly pivot the conversation back to let's just say instability with how the Euro is constructed in how that might shake out with the stress. Axel and I on this show, we do talk a lot about, you know, being bearish on how the European Union is currently constructed and how the euro as a money is is really kind of a weak link in the global financial system. And we actually see the potential downfall of the euro as being a, a positive for Bitcoin as an alternative to the dollar. I'm kind of curious, what is your take on Bitcoin specifically, maybe cryptocurrency, tether, euro, dollar stable coins as part of that, and and how that could play in with you know a, a negative situation for the euro. I I mean it's it's quite obvious when we look at the use case for Bitcoin around the globe that the bigger the turbulence surrounding the fiat currency, the bigger the use case of Bitcoin. We see a relatively strong use case for Bitcoin in many emerging markets. And I mean, should the euro start to resemble the Turkish lira, the Sri Lankan jeet, I think it's called, but the fiat currency of Sri Lanka, currencies that have been faced with extreme volatility as a consequence of bad decision-making by policymakers, as a consequence of the weak fiscal system, then I think the use case for Bitcoin will also grow on in relative terms to the euro, right? So I think you're absolutely spot on that if this energy crisis turns into a an even bigger euro crisis than what we've already seen, I mean, it's, it's bad enough when you look at the development in the euro versus the US dollar, then I think it gets even more tempting to asset allocate to, to alternative sources of money relative to the euro as a consequence of a lack of trust in the construction, as a consequence of a lack of trust in the fiscal system. And I mean, I don't think we're we're there yet, but we it, 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 it's like we, we move there sort of in, in cycles. We're currently heading towards a new low, a lower low than what we saw in the last cycle. And we don't make new peaks in terms of sort of the fiscal stability and the fiscal trustworthiness around the euro. So it's it's kind of on 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 a on a dissipating trend towards zero trustworthiness over time so from from sort of a structural perspective i think it 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 leads to an increasing relative use case for crypto either coin in general relative to the euro when we are faced with issues like the current 
Awesome. CK, do you have, did you have a follow-up for that? I was going to, um, I guess, back. go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I guess like if we have to follow up on, on this, the topic is Bitcoin versus us dollar stable coins. I feel like they're both, mm. you know, both currencies potentially could be like a relief valve, you know, obviously the dollar is kind of the world reserve currency right now, as there's turbulence in other markets, people flood to the dollar, but that also makes life harder because contracts being denominated in dollars that actually makes their liabilities worse. Like how, how do these, like, how does, you know, dollars, stable coin, and then potentially Bitcoin as something completely separate, how do they interact in this kind of future where fiats are failing? Well, I, I mean, I don't think that we can claim that the US dollar is failing yet, even though the sort of long-term value of the US dollar relative to goods is, is obviously on a downwards trend, right? But it's kind of by design, by the monetary policy of the Federal Reserve over the past 100 years that the US dollar needs to weaken versus things that are in sort of scarce supply, right? Such as, as physical goods. So ultimately, I actually think that it, it is how the system is designed and we've deliberately uh, designed the system that way to ensure that inflation is running in positive territory. The flip side uh, to, to this argument is that if you allow a monetary system to run with a fixed sort of a fixed set of supply, then the overall inflation picture will sort of turn around as well, right? If you have a, a fixed set of money relative to a potentially slightly growing set of physical goods, then you would actually encounter deflation on a running basis. And I mean, you wouldn't get a lot of friends at the economic institute at universities if you if you started telling them that it would be smart to run an economy on, on a deflationary trend. I'm a bit more uncertain myself since it's been quite a while since we actually tested it in real life, right? So I mean, let's see where we are headed. I, I think there is there's still quite some time before we really try and, and meddle with the current dollar system. I think the system is basically designed to re-increase the supply of dollars at a running pace and thereby also sort of re-increasing the amount of dollar credit and dollar debt, both domestically and internationally. All right. I was just sidetracked. My boy came in here and opened the front door. So I missed the second half of your answer, but yeah, I, I wanted to pivot back before the end of the show here. Cause we just have a few minutes left to the fed, the FOMC today and what your outlook is for the rest of the year. I know you said that their dot plots are saying this, but CPI is coming down. So if you had to, I guess, you know, project forward, what do you see for the, from the fed for the rest of the year? Well, I, I expect them to continue to hike interest rates throughout this year, probably at a lower pace than what we've seen today with the 75 basis points. So I'll expect them to sort of slowly but surely move to, to, towards 50 basis points, then 25 basis points, and then towards zero, probably sometime in the early parts of next year. The reason being that it's it's pretty clear by now that the asset market is is sort of reacting to the monetary policy, which is exactly what the Fed wanted it to. If we look at the inflation adjusted interest rate in the US, it is now in positive territory across the entire yield curve, which is something that we haven't seen in quite a while. So 
the nominal interest rate is higher than the expect the expected inflation for each and every tenor on the yield curve now usually what we've seen once the real interest rate is back in positive territory is that something breaks relatively fast after that in the asset markets in the overall economy for example in the housing market so my take is that we have a, a pretty bad scenario coming during the next couple of months when it comes to uh, returns on risk assets um, from right around everything uh, from from equities to to crypto to uh, yeah, to even bonds in this scenario and ultimately that is what's needed to convince the fed to turn around because when you break asset markets when you break the housing market you also make sure that inflation breaks the neck or you break the neck on inflation with the time lag. It is very effective as, as uh, a way of bringing inflation down. And, and therefore, I, I, the sad message is that we, we need some more pain in markets before we should sort of reload our, our positionings. The only sort of glimpse of hope I can find right now in relation to that is that the market sentiment is extremely negative. Just look at the positioning in crypto and CFTC data. Look at the positioning in, in e-mini and CFTC data as well. It's almost record negative. When you look at Bank of America's investor survey among big hedge fund, big, big, big asset managers, they all tell you that they are running no risk at the moment and then they uh, they run less equity less crypto exposure than usually so i mean we're probably not too far off the bottom but i'm not buying with an arm and a leg yet all right well andres really appreciate you coming onto the show and giving us a lot of valuable insight into what is happening in europe you know, obviously, we try to keep our audience really abreast with what's happening globally. But it's always great to have an expert who is living on the ground and, and can kind of give us that insight. So I really appreciate you. I think that, you know, our audience would be well served to follow more of your work. And I'd be I'd be excited to hear about where people can find you. You can go find me on Twitter. I'm extremely active in there. At, and then you can find me on Substack. My Substack is called Steno Signals. And then you can find me live on Real Vision in 13 minutes from now. So I host the Real Vision daily briefing a couple of times a week. And I also have my podcast, The Macro Trading Floor, out each and every Sunday on, uh, on right about every podcast app. So I guess that was all. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thank you again, Andreas. Everyone, you got to go follow this man. Folks who aren't paying attention to what's happening in Europe, he presents an enormous amount of alpha. So where can people find you, sir? Yeah, check out bitcoinandmarkets.com. You'll find everything I do there. Thanks, Andreas. Right, yeah. so this, was, this was very enlightening and I hope to get you on again. Absolutely. My pleasure, Ansel and CK. It was a pleasure. Yep, absolutely. And hey, to everyone listening, you can find me on Twitter at CK underscore snarks, of course, everything bitcoinmagazine.com. And then lastly, I will be remiss not to mention Bitcoin Amsterdam. Andres, I hope that you could actually make it to that. If you don't have a ticket, I'd love to, to give you one after this, but it's going to be an absolute fantastic time. October 12th through the 14th, Andres is co-host on his uh, podcast, uh, Macro Elf is going to be speaking there. And it's going to be absolutely fantastic. Over 3,000 Bitcoiners descending onto Amsterdam to talk about what is happening in Bitcoin. Ticket prices are going up this Friday. So make sure not to wait. Get your ticket now. And Amsterdam in the Netherlands completely opened up and dropped 
COVID, COVID travel requirements. So anyone who is on the, on the fence because maybe they had to take an extra train or whatever, that no longer is an obstacle. So come to Bitcoin Amsterdam. We are thrilled to be hosting it in less than a month. And I would also be remiss not to show the Print Bitcoin magazine. So you can get a piece of Bitcoin history every single quarter in your mailbox by subscribing to the print issue of Bitcoin magazine. That is over at store.bitcoinmagazine.com. Use promo code BMLive for discounts across all of our products. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our Proof of Workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLive for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.